Welcome to another episode of On Becoming. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, your host. Before we get started, don't forget that On Becoming has a presence on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. You can send your comments or questions or suggestions to OnBecomingPodcast at gmail.com. And if you're interested in supporting the podcast, if what I've been saying resonates with you, I invite you to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast. You'll see that there are various levels of support possible. Friend of the pod, student of the academy, philosopher in training, disillusioned scholar, and overachiever. You'll find all of those on Patreon. Today I want to talk about growing up evangelical. And I, I'll admit my reflections are going to be somewhat stream of consciousness. Um, let me just start with when I was four and my family was living in Minneapolis. I have almost no memories of that time, but here's one. An overwhelming memory of being a child in the children's choir singing up in front of the church on Christmas Eve. I must have been four years old then. I was very near the microphone and was quite conscious of that. I was kind of hogging the microphones. It was such a lovely time. The service was late in the evening, and there was a time for getting together after the service. There was such a sense of being part of a happy family, my family, and the family of the parish. It's from a time in which there was no divide between what I was taught and what I believed. The only other memory I have of that time in Minnesota is being lost again, right around that same age. I'm sure the memory remains because, well, I was a little kid who had walked too far from home and suddenly didn't know how to get back home. But I did get home, and I did so by myself. I've just used a phrase that is more or less true in this particular instance, all by myself. But I don't want to leave the impression that I wholeheartedly endorse the kind of enlightenment project to put it according to one philosopher, in which you should think for yourself. That injunction is put forward as a way to encourage people to make their own decisions rather than simply follow what other people are doing. That, as a goal, is highly commendable, to own your own decisions. Where I have problems is I don't think we ever just think for ourselves in any strong sense. We're greatly influenced by what other people think, by what other people do. And I can put this in a a different way. One of the most human things to do is to follow instructions and follow the customs of your group. Much of the time, no one questions where these instructions come from or whether they're worth following. I have in mind all of the various messages that come to us from our parents, from our teachers, from our friends, Of course, there are also messages from clever marketing. And then there are, of course, messages from people who just say crazy things. There's no magic way out of this problem. We're bombarded by messages, many of which are contradictory, many of which are untrue. When we're kids, we rely very strongly on our parents for guidance. Sometimes that works out really well. Sometimes it just doesn't. What I mean by that is it's all going to depend on how smart, concerned, careful your parents are, which is something over which children have absolutely no control. I want to emphasize that I come from a loving family. There was never any question about that. In later years, though, I did start to wonder whether there was any conditionality connected to that love. 
In other words, would I have been loved just as much had I rejected the evangelical world into which I was born? To be honest, I, I don't know how to answer that question. So for now, I just want to leave it aside. But I did get the distinct impression that there was much expected of me. Most of those expectations were good. While I think it's a little unrealistic when parents say things like, Oh, honey, when you grow up, you can be anything you want to be. It's a whole lot better than saying, You won't amount to anything, kid. But I can still remember doing something outside the church when I was, I think, eight years old, and having someone from the church scolding me by saying, That wasn't appropriate for the pastor's son. That was the first time anyone had verbalized this point, and it felt like a heavy burden that I didn't want. My parents weren't wealthy. For much of his life, my father was a minister. His first years were in a very expensive suburb, though he wasn't paid very much. We lived at the parsonage, and some people from the church anonymously gave my parents a car. When we ended up moving to Minneapolis, the people who donated the car revealed themselves and said, yes, the car's for you to keep. You can take it with you. Moving to Southern California when I was five was exciting. We were close to Disneyland and Knott's Berry's Farm. And I have strong memories of visiting the San Diego Zoo. Um, the reason the memory is strong is because I tried to throw a peanut into a pen with monkeys. But the peanut didn't go very far, so I hopped over the little fence to get it. And it was at that moment one of the monkeys grabbed me by my hair. What surprised my parents was that my reaction was not fear, but embarrassment. They found that was surprising, given that I was just a little kid. Yeah, somewhere around this time, when I was five or six, that something remarkable happened. My mother was driving me home from Pasadena Christian School when I said something like, I'm not like the other kids. Part of a parent's job is to reassure kids that things are going to be okay. So, of course, my mother replied by saying something like, Oh, sure you are. But I knew in my heart that she was trying to be kind. And I was convinced at that point that she didn't really understand what I was saying. And I should add, that wasn't her fault at all. I was a weird kid. During recess, most of the kids would play games involving a ball or something else. I was happy to play such games, but I couldn't see why they were so important. So you ended up with a ball? Who cares? It's just a stupid ball. To be honest, it's hard for me to take such a thing seriously. I'm delighted that so many people find meaning and purpose in professional sports, particularly football, American regular varieties included. But that's never been an interest of mine. In fact, I can remember excruciating holidays with various relatives that always had the football game going. Since I was a guy, I was expected to be out with the guys watching football. But it was so boring. <laughs> Another way of getting at what I'm saying is that most of the kinds of competition on display in sports just didn't interest me. I was particularly appalled by the violence in American football. It was so brutal, and yet everyone thought it was a truly American sport. This is long, long before the current discussion of high potential of brain injuries and long-term disability. This was just watching men run into one another. And I thought, this is just not a good idea. <laughs> so the sport that I opted for eventually was the probably the least contact sport there is tennis, though I haven't played that for years. 
Even then, of course, I couldn't really get into the spirit of, I've got to win this. It just wasn't part of my nature. And I discovered more about that nature when I was playing Monopoly with some cousins. One of the cousins was playing Monopoly with great seriousness and great delight in winning. I'd never played cutthroat Monopoly. And that made even less sense to me than the concern for sports. How is it possible that winning a game like that becomes so important to someone? I had no trouble playing a game like that, but I couldn't take it seriously. In the end, of course, that person went on to make a lot of money and retired only a few years later <laughs> than when I first began teaching. You don't get into college teaching for m the money. Depending on the school district, many people would be able to make much more money teaching high school. To put a finer point on that, many people get a, a much better salary teaching at a community college than a regular one. But I had taught some courses at a community college, and my experience was that the students varied greatly in their abilities. In my first intro course at the community college, there was a retired mortician who thought studying philosophy could be fun. But then he discovered that he would need to actually read primary source material, and he quickly dropped the course. There was another student, though, that showed great aptitude for philosophy, and I encouraged her to continue. This is what I mean when I say that students varied widely in their abilities as well as their commitment to studying. We moved back to the Chicago area when I was nine. That was a difficult move. I don't think of Southern California as a paradise, no such language is used by people in California. But going back to the Midwest wasn't my idea of a good move. People sometimes ask me why I live so many places. My usual response is, well, that's where my parents moved, so I kind of had to come along. That time in Chicago was a difficult one. My father was working on his doctorate, traveling for a Sunday school curriculum publisher, and teaching at a seminary where he eventually settled for good. In other words, he wasn't home much. I don't see that as some kind of failing on his part. For him to make the move from pastor to professor wasn't easy for any of us in his family, but it was clearly the right thing for him to do. I look back at that time and realize that it was formative in some ways. Here's just one example. I remember buying a 45 RPM record of a recently released pop song. Yeah, this is, this is from a whole different era when recordings came in, in different forms. I took it home, and that's when the trouble began. My parents wanted to hear the song, and they were clearly displeased with its sexual overtones. I was ordered to take it back, which I did. However, my parents were clever enough to offer an alternative. My father would take me to a record store to buy classical music, since I was already taking piano lessons that were leading to the performance of classical music, I had no problem with that. However, I later came to realize that shutting off the world of pop music has had enormous negative consequences. For instance, I became a classical snob and looked down on most other forms of music. And I was only 11 years old, way too young to be a snob. Eventually, I came to do my doctoral dissertation on musical composition, performance, and improvisation, from that point on, I came to see that the model of classical music is more or less the following. Some dead white guy has composed something that people think is really good. There are performers there to transmit the composer's pre-established values to the audience. And the mark of a good performance, at least as it was emerging back then, was to play things just as Mozart or Beethoven would have heard it. 
It was pretty clear to me that this was an impoverished musical model, in which the composer was really the creative person, and everyone else was there to put forth this vision. However, having said that, it was also clear that performers couldn't help but put themselves into the performance. Anyone who tries to perform a notated piece of music can't help but do so. Yet that work also made it clear in my mind why I had become so keen on jazz. While there are many different styles within jazz itself, what hooked me was the combination of playing something that had some form, but clearly was designed to allow for a great deal of creativity. I love the ability to do more than merely play what was written on a page. Interestingly enough, my work in musicology, I ended up spending uh, a year in Germany studying performance practice, and that eventually led me to the work of a relatively unknown musicologist, Christopher Small. Already back in 1987, he had published a book, Music of the Common Tongue, in which he asserted, and then provided a rather startling lineup of examples, that African or African-American inspired music, which would include jazz, the blues, reggae, Broadway tunes, country western, calypso, rock music, and probably things I can't even think of right now, that all of that represented a far more important contribution to world culture than anything classical composers did in the 20th century. I think he's entirely correct. As much as I'd miss Debussy and various other composers of the 20th century, Small's point is that these are mere continuations of a tradition. In contrast, music that emerged from the African diaspora resulted in a whole new raft of musical styles. Speaking of music, I have to mention Sketch Erickson. There was this guy who came to our church for at least one Sunday evening, and I think he came back more than once. I guess his name was Erickson, and Sketch was what he did. Interestingly enough, I cannot for the life of me remember exactly what he drew. But the real message is clear enough. We were told that rock music was the devil's music. Now, I would have been about 12 at this point, maybe 13. But somehow I knew that what he was saying just didn't make any sense. How could a particular rhythm be satanic or demonic? I don't think he made any claims to the effect that if we were to play certain popular songs backwards, we'd hear that the words are praising the devil. There were certainly lots of people making that kind of claim. What's probably important here is this. I simply wasn't convinced of his argument against rock music, even though I wasn't a fan of rock music, so I didn't have a horse in that race. But it just struck me as a bad argument. I later came to discover that the different modes of music, which the ancient Greeks discovered, really do have clear effects on us. For instance, the Phrygian mode is often used in film and television to convey a sense of suspense and impending danger. If you've ever seen a horror film, you have heard music in the Phrygian mode, I'm sure. I don't know if there are any people today who would argue that rock music is demonic. I hope that nobody talks like that anymore, since it's just silly. But a more quite interesting question is, what was the real problem with rock? Yes, I realize that it often appears in a phrase with drugs and sex, But what's so bad about certain rhythms? I think the real answer is that many rock songs make you want to get up and move your legs. That's called dancing. And that clearly wasn't allowed in my culture. I never tried to ask if I could attend a school dance, because I knew what the answer would be. There's an old joke about why evangelicals don't allow sex standing up, because it might lead to dancing. 
Our next move was to Dallas, Texas. There's an important commonality between people who live in California and Texas. That is, both are very proud of their states. We moved when, if we had stayed in the Midwest, I would have gone to high school. But the public school system in Dallas followed a different path, which meant that I arrived for the last year of middle school. My time at the middle school turned out really well. I had some excellent teachers, and I really enjoyed my studies. However, even though I went to what was then considered the best public high school in Dallas, I just didn't find that much of it interesting. I think I've said before that I'm highly attentive to practice. I realize that probably sounds strange from a philosopher. But I find myself greatly motivated to study things that I can see as affecting my life in some kind of way. I'm not generally interested in highly abstract philosophy, and there's lots of that, and basically most of that I've never read. My first job was that of janitor at my church. I was 16, and like most Americans of that era, I had my driver's license as soon as my birthday came. That allowed for some freedom. Janitors are generally overlooked, but you can learn a lot about how things function in such a position. The guy who hired me used to say, people is pigs. It was a joke, but it also reflected the reality. I had always assumed that women's restrooms would be so much cleaner than men's restrooms. Oh, I was so wrong. One of the best things about the job was that they paid me for 12 hours a week, but they were only interested in the work getting done. If I could do it in nine hours, that just meant more time for me. Of course, being part of a janitor at a large church is that you're constantly needing to set up stuff, chairs, tables, screens, projectors, and then take it all back down. One of the things I most remember is what turned out to be a very strange conflict. The people who ran the nursery used to disinfect all the toys. So I was surprised when I went into a classroom, it was a Saturday, and realized, you know, Sunday was the next day, and then none of the toys had been clean. I wanted to do my job right, so of course I immediately phoned the person in charge to let her know. But it was only later that I discovered that this woman was so angry at me that she demanded that I be fired for telling her that. As best as I can tell, she must have thought that I was excoriating her for toys being left unclean. But when you are a janitor, you come to realize that a place like church is used for so many different functions in a week. I simply assumed that the woman in charge would want to know. What I discovered was that she did not want to know and seemed to have thought that I was calling her judgment into question. That was an eye-opening experience. I came to appreciate the saying, no good deed goes unpunished. Because I was tired of school, I graduated a semester early. That allowed for me to get a new job as a radio announcer at the local Christian radio station. This was no ordinary Christian radio station. It was run by the First Baptist Church of Dallas, which owned the Criswell Bible Institute, and thus you get the call letters KCBI. That I got this job is interesting in and of itself. I'd gone around to some stations in Dallas to see if I could get any work. The public television station offered me the privilege of answering their phones for their fund drives, but without any pay. When I went to KCBI, I met with the station manager. He was encouraging, but didn't have anything. But within a week or so, one of his employees ended up getting married and going on honeymoon. So I got a call. Are you interested? It was the graveyard shift, yes, but I was utterly thrilled. Then I needed to buy the textbook that you basically needed to memorize in order to get a third-class broadcasting license. I memorized it within a day and then passed the test easily. And all of this happened within a very, very short period of time. 
For me, this was the most independence that I attained thus far. It was exciting to be on the air. They didn't let me do that very much at first. But then the guy got back from his honeymoon and took over his regular shift, the graveyard shift, and within a few days, the person handling the afternoon drive shift left for another job, and so I took that one. Back then, W.A. Criswell was the pastor of the church. I have to say that he was a mighty orator. I didn't much care for his sermons, but it was clear that he was a powerful preacher. Still, I have a very funny memory of playing one of his sermons. The sermons were on cassette tapes, yes, yes, all analog. And you had to actually turn them over at the right spot. I'd put on the sermon tape and was in the studio, probably daydreaming or reading a book, when I suddenly heard the phrase, please turn the cassette over to the other side. That part wasn't supposed to be on the air. Back in those days, the station played half sacred music and half secular music. It was Texas, of course, so we had our fair share of Elvis singing hymns, which is what he grew up singing with his family. But we also played jazz, a form of music I was just discovering. We played cuts from albums by George Shearing, a British pianist who was blind from birth. Looking back over my own playing, I realized just how much I'd been influenced by Shearing. He had been classically trained, so he was able to insert fascinating Debussy-esque kind of moves into his playing. As it turns out, I'd been taking lessons from a woman in Dallas who taught me how to play gospel piano. That's southern gospel piano, not southern African-American gospel, which is much more complicated and harmonically more interesting. Still, I'd marched through an entire hymnal. We started with all the hymns in the key of C and then worked our way around the circle of fifths so that by the time I was done, I had played every hymn in the book in that gospel style. But it was when I was listening to George Shearing that I started to think, I think I could do that. Because once you learn the chords, you can work with charts or lead sheets or fake books. Uh, fake books are the things that give you the melody line and a chord symbol, and then you, like, you fake the rest. Although at that time I was studying classical music with the premier teacher in the area, uh, to give you an idea how serious she was, she had two Steinway seven-foot grands side by side in the living room. I quickly gravitated to jazz. What I loved about jazz is that for most players, they begin with a basic structure and then work from there. I came to realize that I'd much rather make my own music than follow notes on a page. Put another way, I stopped playing classical music and have been playing jazz ever since. I soon discovered people like Oscar Peterson and then, of course, the, my most important influence, Bill Evans. Alas, Bill Evans died before I discovered him but I did have the opportunity to hear both Shearing and Peterson in jazz clubs later. However, as exciting as all that was, I was soon to discover a part of the world I didn't know much about. I had traveled to Guatemala when I was 15 as part of a youth choir from my church. We were Los Cantantes del Amor, the singers of love. That exposure to Central America proved very significant. Guatemala is a beautiful country, beset with many, many problems. One of our concerts was at the military academy. We were served very strong coffee with lots of sugar. We'd been told on this trip that we should simply accept what our host had to offer. So I did so. I found this mixture absolutely disgusting. I had never had coffee, and the idea of putting sugar in it only seemed to make it worse. 
But I willed myself, you know, that kind of willing where you say, somehow I'm going to be able to do this. I willed myself to drink the entire thing. And then immediately they poured me another cup. And I thought, how can I drink another one? <laughs> but Guatemala was put in the shade when I spent the summer after high school in Europe. My parents, bless their hearts, strongly encouraged me to go as a summer missionary. I want to say more about this phenomenon of the summer or visiting missionary, but not here. I was assigned to work at what was then called the Belgian Bible Institute, and my task was to paint windows, paint window frames. I had no painting experience. And if you know anything about painting, painting window frames requires a steady and deft hand. Much later in life, I would discover professional painters who would have done a marvelous job. But that's because they had developed the techniques of the hand that result in precision. I had been trained to play the piano, but none of that served me as a painter. I was just terrible at it. But the summer was glorious. Well, it isn't glorious in terms of weather. Back then, Belgium had cool and rainy summers. If it got up to 65 degrees, that was warm. But I wasn't there for the weather. Once again, we were instructed that we should simply accept whatever was offered. That turned out to be really good advice for me. I'd been a very picky eater in the early years of my life. We had an entire month-long vacation that spread from Southern California to Northern Michigan with me ordering a cheeseburger at almost every meal, except for breakfast, of course. In Belgium, I discovered foods I had never eaten and ways of eating that I'd never experienced. Everything was served family style, and I remember a large bowl of fried potatoes being placed on the table. That looked good, but then I realized that people were eating it with mayonnaise. I had long hated ketchup, and even today why people wonder why people like it so much. But mayonnaise on fried potatoes, oh, I discovered that was heaven. It was also that summer that I discovered Nutella, which back then was utterly unknown in the States. One of the things I soon realized that there were two ways of being in a foreign culture. One way is a less typical American way, in which one is always remarking about how much better things are in the States. That wasn't how I viewed things. In fact, I was so open to my new experience that I largely suspended critical judgment simply to just get an idea of what people were doing and how they lived their lives. Part of growing up in the States is that one is constantly told that everyone in the world wants to live there. However, spending that summer in Belgium made me realize one really important thing. There's no such thing as the greatest country. Yes, the U.S. has enough bombs to destroy the world, but the idea that everything American was ultimately better was a thought that I could no longer think. For it became evident that there were so many wonderful things about Belgian culture, such as the food, entire shops devoted to cheese, something not yet a thing in the States at all, and of course the beer. I even had my first beer while in Belgium. It was a Stella Artois in a cafe not very far away from the Stella Brewery. Uh, the Stella Brewery is still in that place, and I still have the glass. Another way in which this sojourn opened my eyes was seeing just how much of evangelical culture truly was American. In evangelical culture, smoking and drinking were long thought to be wrong. That's changed quite a bit in the intervening time. But what I was able to see was that these were completely cultural things. The evangelicals in Belgium weren't much concerned about smoking and drinking, but they were absolutely scandalized by the amount of makeup American women wore. 
<laughs> the very fact that I couldn't make any sense of this made me realize that there was no sense to make sense of. They were just prohibitions that weren't really based on anything. There were so many ways in which my up-until-then relatively narrow framework was expanded. A couple of friends and I went to London for a few days. Obviously, visiting a private city like London is a wonderful treat. Again, I had the same thoughts. Life here doesn't seem so bad. So why do people in America assume everything is better there? But my mind was blown by something else, something I really couldn't have expected. We ended up visiting Westminster Abbey during the tourist hours and then went back for a service. I remember as clear as day hearing the sermon and thinking, this guy might be a Christian too. You'll probably think that's a very strange thought, but the evangelical world in which I grew up was pretty firm that the evangelical view was the right one. I remember thinking of the poor Catholic kids down the street. They were all going to hell. Of course, I discovered that they thought exactly the same thing about me. From a very early age, it was apparent that some churches were good and others were bad. I can still remember my Canadian relatives, my, my mom was Canadian, speaking of the Anglican Church in Canada as just a social club. But of course, once you introduce a distinction like good and bad churches, then a question immediately arises, which are which, and how do you decide? I remember driving with my father and asking about particular churches as we drove by. Dad, is that a good church? I have to give my father enormous credit. While he did think that some of the churches were or weren't good, he also admitted that, regarding some of them, he simply didn't know. That was an important opening for me. Maybe there were churches out there that were reasonably as good as the evangelical ones we had always attended. I think I've mentioned that my grandmother on my mother's side often stayed with us, in some cases for months at a time. It was probably great for her to leave Winnipeg for Pasadena in the winter months, for instance. We were very close, but we always seemed to be arguing points of theology. My parents generally stayed out of these disputes, so they did from time to time tell me that I shouldn't have talked back to my grandmother. It was only many years later that they admitted that I was often right. Lest you think I saw this as a game, I should point out that these arguments came about because I took matters of theology extremely seriously. Neither my grandmother nor I had had any theological training back then. But I look back and I realize I was just trying to find out what the truth was. I want to give you another example that I think both tells us quite a bit about evangelicalism and how it can change very quickly, as in, you used to think X was okay, but now you find out that X is absolutely forbidden. The X I'm talking about in this case is abortion. And I'm not really interested in the phenomenon of abortion per se. I'm interested in how this took place. When I was growing up, the evangelical consensus was that abortion is sometimes the best choice out of what often are only bad choices. W.A. Criswell of the First Baptist Church of Dallas preached that from the pulpit. He said it was a decision between a woman and God. But then I got invited to attend a seminar on an abortion led by Francis Schaeffer and C. Everett Koop. Koop was the Surgeon General at that time. Now, before I go any further, I should point out that Schaeffer, he was a pastor with appropriate pastoral training, had become something like the default evangelical intellectual. Just to be clear, it wasn't as if there were intellectual evangelicals lining up for this position. Evangelicalism was, from an intellectual point of view, largely a wasteland. Given its roots in fundamentalism, 
which generally meant a retreat from secular culture, evangelicals didn't really have much of an intellectual tradition. So Schaefer was somewhat of a filler for that void, though only somewhat. The problem was, as I've said, that he had proper ministerial training. He didn't have any expertise in the realms of philosophy, culture, or any other things like that. Thus, while Schaefer was an important voice in calling evangelicals to take culture seriously, he didn't have much to offer other than a pastor's take on culture. Of course, that was already revolutionary at the time. But let's get back to the seminar, which had a book and a film series. The whole thing was titled, Whatever Happened to the Human Race? Obviously, it was designed to get evangelicals on board the anti-abortion train. But to do that, Schaefer and Coop made the argument that if you allow abortion, the result will be, not might be, everything that happened in Nazi Germany. I found the entire presentation simply insulting, and it made me extremely angry. I didn't know that this kind of fallacy actually has a name. It's called the slippery slope fallacy. One difficulty with any kind of literal or metaphorical slippery slope is just how slippery it is. Would allowing abortion really lead to people making lampshades of human skin or the horrendous medical experiments the Nazis did with people in the camps? Perhaps. But it struck me that the likelihood of all that was extremely small. What really bothered me was that I considered this kind of logic shady or disreputable. Here were two relatively famous people making what amounted to enormous logic error in order to promote a particular point of view. Of course, when you start looking at the logic of many evangelical things, it becomes clear that there is little logic for many of them. But of course, I should also add that as a rule, I don't think that our ordinary everyday practices need to be justified. If you take your tea at 4 p.m., you don't need to explain or justify yourself. But abortion didn't seem anything like tea time. It was clearly a much more important issue. But I was so dismayed that the discussion was so crude and so lacking in nuance. It was clear what we were supposed to believe, but the details were very problematic. Again, I don't mean this as a comment on abortion per se, Instead, I wish to convey two things. One was, it was quite a shock to go from hearing that abortion was okay to hearing that suddenly it wasn't okay. There isn't anything in the Bible on the subject. Sometimes people extrapolate from things that the Bible says, but there's really nothing in the Bible that talks about this subject. So how did they come to their point of view? Alas, as far as I could tell, they did so by a major fallacy. Now, I should point out that how should I put this? My discomfort with evangelicalism had started to grow before this. You might have thought I was wasting my breath in talking about being a janitor. But again, it put me in almost a privileged place. Yes, I realize that saying a janitor has any kind of privilege seems really odd. But I was able to see quite a bit about how much people live their lives in accordance with their beliefs. As evangelicals, we made fun of the Southern Baptists for being Sunday-only Christians. But I came to realize that this gap between preaching and practicing was significant in evangelicalism, too. However, the other thing that this event revealed to me was that even seemingly important views could change over time. The realization came with the discouragement that who knew which, which evangelical view might fall next, 
but also the encouragement that change could be possible. My discomfort with evangelicalism, though, much predated this. I was encouraged by my parents to read the Bible all the way through, cover to cover. There was even a little paper schedule so you know exactly where you're supposed to be. I definitely made it through the Bible at least three times. But then I decided, yeah, enough is enough. Let me say this. If you are a Christian, really of any sort, but particularly if you're an evangelical, you should be very circumspect about advising your children to read the Bible. Yes, there are some lovely nuggets here and there, but so much of it is sheer drudgery, except when it all gets very weird. The weird stuff is particularly in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. One of the most terrifying stories, and there are ample candidates in this category, is when God instructs the Israelites to, and now I'm quoting, smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. What kind of God issues commands like that? In the evangelical world, people have different ways of dancing around this, even though they don't have the hermeneutical ability to say, well, that's just an awful story, let's ignore it. Instead, one says things like, oh, well, that was a long time ago, or God was protecting the Israelites. One good thing about being a mainline Christian church is that such stories are radically downplayed. But when you think that the text is inspired by God and is inerrant, There's not much more you can do than say that, well, that may not make a lot of sense to us, but we don't know the mind of God. To be sure, by definition, no one knows the mind of God. But a lot of evangelicals seem to think they do. I hadn't learned the term genocide yet, so I didn't realize that God was, in effect, not just sanctioning, but commanding genocide. But I want to end with one last aspect. My parents were both musical. They both had lovely singing voices, and my mother played the piano, so it was no surprise that we had music in the house. Although my parents both appreciated classical music, they were more likely to play a recent album by a Christian group. I liked these songs, and later discovered that the style was something like modified jazz. But so many of them, from my perspective at the time, practically all of them, were cheery little tunes like Heaven Came Down and Glory Filled My Soul, or... Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Now, this sounds just lovely, but at a certain point I came to realize that this just didn't describe my experience at all. Rather than question the basic premise of these lyrics, something like, when you're with Jesus, everything is great, I started to worry about me. I simply didn't have the experience that every day got better and better. I had never had a sense that glory had ever filled my soul. And so I started worrying quite seriously that something hadn't taken. Yes, I'd asked Jesus in my heart, but my life didn't seem anything like what these happy people were singing about. One evening, the pastor issued an altar call, and I went forward. My parents were utterly perplexed. From their perspective, I had already done what you're supposed to do to be a Christian. But I didn't have anything like the assurance that all is well. That was a long time ago. And in the meantime, I've never had the sense that things just got better with Jesus. They definitely got more complicated. But I think that's a story for another episode. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. You've been listening to the podcast On Becoming. Thank you so much for joining us.